Let's pray. Father, uh, what a beautiful passage of Scripture showing that you are sovereignly ruling, not over merely just heaven, but over all the kingdoms of men. And you give it, you give them to whomever you please. Uh, so Lord, uh, you are the top. We are, you are the one that we appeal to. You are the one that has all power to accomplish your purposes. We ask that you would make yourself known through your word today and that we would be uh, more than just hearers but doers. We would leave after hearing your word proclaimed today uh, those who see you as sovereign, those who are submitted to you, and those who uh, are all of our hope is just placed upon you and you alone. Uh, We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Revelation 18, 1 through 2 says this. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, or great Babylon. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for unclean spirits, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Uh, Babylon is a term that in Revelation is, is used over and over and over again for the quote-unquote great city or kingdom that opposes God and supports the works of Satan. In Daniel's day, the people of God, Israel, had been delivered over to Babylon because of their own idolatry. They were worshiping uh, other gods, and God raised up Babylon and delivered his people into Babylon as judgment for their idolatry. For many years, the Israelites lived as exiles in the beautiful and powerful nation of Babylon. Beautiful and powerful and idolatrous. In Revelation, the imagery applies to all the people of God. We live in the beautiful and powerful world. Beautiful, powerful, and idolatrous. We live as exiles. Today, we are, we're going to look at Babylon's beauty, we're going to look at its power, and we're going to look at its idolatry And we're going to hope to glean something helpful for ourselves since we too are the people of God living in exile. Uh, we're, We're looking at Babylon's beauty, power, and idolatry so that we might know how to live in exile in the midst of Babylon, the world. Before diving directly into the text, I want you to see the heart of Nebuchadnezzar before his fall. Verse 4 says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. There was no worries, there was no anxiety, everything was prospering, and he was at ease. Uh, Verse 29 through 30, at the end of 12 months, this is after he had received the dream and the interpretation, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Babylon was prosperous, and in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, it was prosperous because of him. He built it for his glory, by his majesty, by his mighty power. Uh, Pride quite literally comes before the fall in chapter 4. So make no mistake, Babylon is beautiful, it is powerful, and it is idolatrous. And so I want to just kind of 
try to give you a picture of what it may have looked like from Nebuchadnezzar's palace roof as he's looking over this city. This is based on historical things that I've read about Babylon. For the roof of my northern citadel, I can survey nearly my entire great city that I have built. I thought about the large courts, the reception rooms, the hundreds of bedrooms, and my throne room as I stood on the roof which covered them all. I can see the 16-mile outer double wall built around the city during my reign to surround and protect this great Babylon. I look at the inner city, the center city, where my palace lies at the edge of, the beauty of its eight gates and the beauty of the Euphrates River, the liquid of life that surrounds this inner city, which was about two miles by a half a mile. Extra watery protection, but my ingenuity allowed the Euphrates to even run in the midst of the city as a water supply. Providing an excellent water source for my legendary world wonder, the Hanging Gardens, which, according to legend, my lovely wife is a median queen, and she gets homesick, and so I literally brought the green of home to Babylon and hung it on all the walls and used the power of the Euphrates to water it. Many of the palace inner court walls contain the loveliest of plants, and there outside of my palace is the road I paved with limestone and decorated with dozens of statues of lions in honor of the gods. The road ran to the city through the Ishtar Gate, one of the eight, which I decorated with dragons and bulls in honor of the gods Marduk and Baal. The limestone road continues south through our sacred district, and eventually it comes to my own Tower of Babel, a ziggurat crowned at the top with a temple for Marduk. And when you enter into those doors, you will find a grand statue of my God himself. My city is beautiful and powerful, beautiful, powerful, and idolatrous. This is our text today. We're going to take some themes found in Daniel 4 and also elsewhere in the Bible. And we're going to ask ourselves some questions about these themes. We're going to particularly focus on where is Christ to be found in this chapter. And finally, we'll end with a vision of an even greater city and an even greater king, one whom we can obey and one that we can live for uh, without fear of idolatry. So our first point is this, our first theme. Babylon is a counterfeit tree of life. Christ is the true tree of life. Babylon is a counter tree of life, counterfeit tree of life. Christ is the true tree of life. This is coming mainly through verses 10 through 15. So Nebuchadnezzar opens up the text, kind of foreshadowing the end. He starts with this worship of the sovereign God, because that's where he ends up. And then the rest from verse 4 on just tells, well, how did he get to that part? And interesting, uh, Pastor David, the call to worship was Psalm 145. He basically quotes Psalm 145, God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. The Chaldeans and the astrologers come in, and they fail at interpreting the dream. There's a little bit of a difference from Daniel 2. He doesn't threaten to lop off all of their limbs and kill their houses if they don't tell him the dream. He just tells them the dream and asks for an interpretation. They can't tell him. The, verse, the text reads in verse 8, at last Daniel came in. And so really what the, the writer's doing here is 
You might imagine a long line of people coming in to interpret this dream, and Daniel's at the very end. And so each time someone fails to do the interpretation, less and less hope for Nebuchadnezzar. And then finally, the very last man standing, Daniel comes onto the scene, and of course, you know, he's able to give uh, the, the interpretation. And note here this idolatry theme once again creeping up. As soon as Daniel comes in, he who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God, right? So already Neb's, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is reminding us of idolatry. In whom is the spirit of the holy gods? All right, so verses 10 through 12, uh, Nebuchadnezzar summarizes the beginning of his dream saying this, I saw, uh, sorry, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in it, and its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So a couple of things here. First, we have creation language. Beasts of the field, birds of heavens. That's taking us back, Genesis 1 through 3. Genesis 1 through 3, a big theme in it, trees. Huge tree. And so here we have a tree. All right, so already we're kind of thinking of this. Listen to Genesis 2, 9's description of where the tree of life is. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. All right. Babylon, the tree, was in the midst of the earth. And so now we have two trees that are, quote, unquote, in the centers. Um, Commentator Golden Gay literally makes that point and says, uh, the, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he then says that because both texts put these trees in the center, we should see a slight allusion to the tree of life being here. And so the question then we can ask ourselves is, which tree is Babylon? Is it setting itself up to be the tree of life, or is it not? Is it not? Jesus also alludes to Daniel 4. And he seems to answer this question for us. Luke 13, 18 through 19, Jesus says this. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So there's a lot of overlap between Daniel 4 and Luke 13. Let me point out a couple of things. Kingdom comes up in Luke 13, verse 4, 27, 39, 31, 32, 36, 37. Kingdom's a big theme of Luke 13. Kingdom comes up in Daniel 4, 26 times. It's the biggest theme. Kingdom or king, right? 26 times. Tree, Luke 13, 10, 20, 22, 23, 26. The, be- the center of our vision here is a tree. Um, birds of the heavens come up in Luke 13, come up in Luke 13. So we know from Daniel 2 that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was prophesied to fall, right? Eventually, the kingdom of God is going to come, and it's going to crush this multi-layered statue, which is all the different kingdoms of the world, and it's going to crush it into chaff. And then we know from Daniel 3 that Nebuchadnezzar seems to rebel directly against the interpretation of this dream. How did he do that? He builds a statue of himself that's made of pure gold, which represented his kingdom, the head of gold, right? But he made the whole statue gold in defiance of the dream. 
And here Jesus is telling us the kingdom of God is like a tree, right? And so it is the very kingdom that will cause the fall of all the kingdoms of heaven. Jesus here tells us the kingdom of God may look small, but eventually it will be a gigantic tree. And he alludes to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 4, making the connection and telling us Babylon is not the kingdom of God. Jesus' kingdom is the kingdom of God. Eating Babylon's fruit will only lead to death. So in Luke 13, Jesus is also referring to another passage about trees, because trees is a big theme in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 17, 22 through 24. And the context for Ezekiel 17 is Babylon and God's people. It's about God using Babylon as judgment against the idolatrous Israelites, which is what we've kind of been talking about at the beginning. Verses 22 through 24 give Israel a hope and a vision of a tree that is going to restore their kingdom. And so 22 through 24 says this, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I will bring low the high tree and make the high and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. And so Jesus is the king and Jesus ushers in the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus is making the claim that that kingdom and that kingdom alone is the true tree by which under all the nations shall flourish and have life. So what does Scripture tell us? Uh, well, I want to say this too. More on the tree language, right? Um, Christ himself brings about the kingdom of God by dying on a tree, right? Um, Galatians says this, Cursed is every man hung on a tree. He's quoting Deuteronomy. And then later on, Galatians interprets Deuteronomy like this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Behold the tree of life, Christ and him crucified. And so our first point here is that the world and Babylon in our text are counterfeit trees of life. They offer to us the things that only God himself can provide And he only provides those things through Jesus Christ himself, who is the tree of life. So let's look at a a second theme. We're not going to put too much into this because this one's just a slight illusion in our text. But our second theme, we're looking at verse 11, 20, and 34, but other things too. So we're not going to make too much because this is just kind of a slight illusion. When I first kind of read through Daniel 4 to to prep, I was kind of struck by the creation language which there was a little bit of fire to the smoke. But there was also something interesting. This phrase in verse 4, or sorry, the phrase that says that the the tree reached its tops to the heavens kind of made me think of the Tower of Babel. All right, so then let's just read 11.4. This is Genesis 11.4, Tower of Babel. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be 
dispersed over the face of the earth. And our text tells us in verse 11 and 20, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom grew strong and its, quote-unquote, top reached to the heaven. Is there any other similarities to the Tower of Babel story? The Tower of Babel and Babylon both desire to reach the heavens. Both Babel and Babylon are technically the same words. Babel is just our transliteration of a Hebrew word. Babylon is the same word transliterated from Greek instead of Hebrew. So they're literally the same linguistic words. The Tower of Babel and Babylon in Daniel's day are located in the same geographic location on earth, the land of Shinar. So if you go, um, you could just jot this down, but if you go to Genesis 10.10 or Genesis 11.2, it'll describe the Tower of Babel or the city of Babel as being built in the land of Shinar. And if you go to Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, Babylon is located in the land of Shinar. So these are same words, same geographic location, similar concepts going on. Babel and Babylonian quite literally means the gate of God, which is why when in Genesis 11 we read it religiously that they're not just building like a tall skyscraper just to have like awesome height and a good view, but they're literally trying to build themselves up to the gods, right? They're trying to, in their own works, make themselves a way to God. Uh, Genesis uh, 11.3 talks about bricks. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and uh, bitumen for mortar. Uh, this actually describes the early process around the same exact historical time period of the invention of what's called a ziggurat, which is this, it's kind of like a pyramid that they would build up and then around it there would be a staircase that goes all the way to the top, and then oftentimes civilizations like Babylon would build a temple to their God at the very top, and they would see these things as a kind of ladder of communication between the gods. So Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon has the same ziggurat, and we think the Tower of Babel is a similar concept here. So what is going on here? We can do what is right in God's eyes by eating of the tree of life, or we can do what is right in our own eyes by continuing to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and try to literally be our own gods, to mark off what we think is right and what we think is evil. God literally creates nations by confusing the language in Genesis 11 and spreading them over all the earth. And in Nebuchadnezzar's day, most of the nations now are brought back under this kingdom. All the nations are brought back under this kingdom like Israel in exile-like fashion. And once again, the same temptation is presenting itself to the people of God. Maybe Babylon, maybe Babel is the way to God. Maybe this is right. Maybe this is good. But again, like in our first point, Christ is the tree of life under whose leaves the nations can find shade. Christ is also the true tower of Babel. He is the only way to God. In Acts chapter 2, the nations have gathered to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit descends upon the church, and one of the first things that they are able to do is they speak all the different languages of the nations. Why? So that they can proclaim the message, the only message by which all nations can actually gather around. Jesus is the true Tower of Babel, and we're constantly tempted to look at our governments, to look at our, our jobs, to look at our, our, you know, 
what we find our entertainment in. We're constantly tempted to find our hope and our life from that. And we're constantly tempted to define what is good and evil in our own eyes instead of submission to the king of the world. Uh, So let's look at our third, our third point, which is more centralized to idolatry, beasts without reason. Verse 16, 25, 33, 34. Uh, Verses 31 through 32 kind of start to actuate the dream that he's had, right? The interpretation. Uh, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. So Nebuchadnezzar's idolatry here of other gods and his idolatry of his own majesty and his mighty power led him to become quite literally a beast, quite literally. The image of oxen lined his kingdom in homage to his god Marduk, and now he eats grass like the very oxen of his images that he drew up. He's becoming the literal thing he worshipped. Let's see here. Idolatry, so let's, let's say it this way. I don't think that, at least when I've approached this passage, that oftentimes I don't think rightly about idolatry. I don't think about the effects that self-worship and idolatry has on my own soul, the marks it makes, the, the marks it can make on souls of those around us, and particularly the marks it can make on society around us. So I'm struck by the simplicity of verse 34. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to the heaven, and my reason returned to me. And what's the very first thing that a reasonable person should do? And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. God is the giver of reason. Uh, Do we find uh, people who worship false gods around us as reasonable? God has given them this reason. But note here that true God-given reason, uh, it does something to a person when they receive it from God. One of the, the, the chief fruits of reasonableness is that we should praise God for who he is. That's one of the chief fruits, one of the first things that Nebuchadnezzar does when reason returns to him. Worshiping and blessing God and honoring God are the purest fruits of reason. To not do these things is utterly unreasonableness and is beastly. That's what I'm trying to say here. Uh, I, I sometimes think, maybe I don't believe this to be true, sometimes I think we, we, we tend to divorce worship from understanding. Worshiping God through Christ is the purest sign that you are operating quite reasonably in this life. And the opposite is true. Not worshiping Christ is one of the chief signs that you are not operating reasonably in this life. So Nebuchadnezzar has now become like the things at the bottom of his kingdom, all right? He has become like the beasts of the field that he, the great tree, once shaded. He's become like the birds of the heavens that he, the great tree's branches, once housed. Uh, Note, right? He's quite literally eating grass like an ox, and his hair has grown long like eagle feathers, and his nails have grown long like bird's claws, essentially, Uh, So, a good question of the text. Is this literal or figurative? Yes. Yes. It is literal. 
is a historical example of a king uh, who acts like an ox. Uh, now, this is actually an observable mental disorder that some have labeled boanthropy. So there's a guy named R.K. Harrison. This is the 40s. And he literally watched one of the patients who had boanthropy, and he walked on all fours out in the kind of outer hall or the outer field, and he would eat grass, and they would have to bring water to him. This is something that literally can and does happen to people. But it also serves a figurative purpose as well. The king becoming a beast is an allusion to one of the stronger metaphors that's going to be used by Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. He's going to start talking about nations, and he's using the imagery of beasts to replace them. And then that that metaphor is carried throughout the New Testament, primarily in the book of Revelation. You'll see beasts pop up left and right, and normally this is standing for the demonic powers that lie behind nations that are worshiping false gods, right? And so, yes, it's literal. Nebuchadnezzar really did become a beast. And yes, it's also figurative. It's setting up one of the main metaphors for how God describes in his word, um, essentially the Antichrist and the end times. Um, So governments that kill God's people have submitted themselves squarely to Satan through idolatry. Uh, so more Nebuchadnezzar's, more evidence for Nebuchadnezzar's transformation being more than just literally a description of him. I'll give you an example from Revelation. Revelation 17, 12 says this. And then ten horns that you saw, or sorry, the ten horns that you saw are the ten kings who have not received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Um, interesting enough, this is alluding back to Daniel 7 but it's also alluding back to Daniel 4. This word one hour in the Septuagint version of Daniel, so that's the Greek version, it uses in Daniel 4.17, it uses the phrase one hour to refer to King Nebuchadnezzar's transformation into a beast, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to endure for one hour. Now it's not literally one hour, it's just a period of time. But Revelation 17, which is talking about the nation submitted to Satan and the beasts and authority being given to them, is actually referring back to Nebuchadnezzar's transformation into a beast. And so there is a connection to this as serving as a metaphor uh, throughout the Bible. Here's another um, example kind of in the same area. Um, In chapter 18, the very next chapter of Revelation, it discusses the time when Babylon the Great, or in Greek, Great Babylon, is judged by God. And this is quoting Daniel chapter 430, when um, Nebuchadnezzar is on his roof, and he says, is not this great Babylon, or quite literally, is not this Babylon the great? And so this text is literal. Nebuchadnezzar really did become a beast, but it's also setting us up for Daniel chapter 7 and even Revelation to understand the metaphoric uh, language of beasts. So that's, that's heady stuff. What does it mean for us? Um, there's a couple of things, kind of two things that I think we can take from this. First, We should not put our trust in the government. 100%. Never. Governments that once claim God can quickly shift and transform into beasts that kill their people. It happens over and over and over again in history. It was an instant where Nebuchadnezzar went from being perfectly reasonable to perfectly beastly in an instant. 
And it's the same way uh, with the nations who are submitting themselves to idolatry, who are worshiping false gods. Uh, We have become more and more tolerant of idolatry in our personal lives, in those around us, and in our society. And the more tolerant we are of idolatry, the more beastly we become as a society. I'll, I'll give scripture for that in a second. I just want to give one example, and I'm not picking on any party here. I'm just giving an example of idolatry in America today. This is how the, the House of Representatives opened themselves in prayer for year 2021. The God who created the world and everything in it bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us. Number six, right? And be gracious unto us. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon us and give us peace, peace upon our families, peace across the land. And dare I ask, O Lord, peace even in this chamber. We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many names, by many different faiths. So number six was idolatrous gods. America is beautiful. America is powerful. America is idolatrous. Now, let's put it into our own personal lives. This also means for us that we should repent of idolatry. And so let me show you something uh, that kind of shows you how idolatry can make us into beasts. Romans 1, 21 through 23, Paul writes this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they, may, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so Paul is describing um, idolatry. When you exchange the glory of God for the glory of anything else, whether it be a false god or it's actually a created thing or a piece of entertainment, it doesn't matter. When you exchange God's glory for that, it describes we became fools, our hearts were darkened, right? There's some bad descriptions there. But more so, if you keep following the logic, verse 24 on, Paul gives a threefold judgment of God on idolaters. He, he describes the judgment that's given to people who are in idolatry and, and societies in idolatry. He describes it as threefold. And so I just want you to see it's three gifts. He literally gives us what we want. So verse 24, he gives us up to the lusts of our hearts. Verse 26, he gives us up to dishonorable passions seen keenly in relationships contrary to nature, such as homosexuality. Verse 28 tells us that God gives us up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Idolatry leads to God's judgment. What does God's judgment look like for idolatry? A giving of the people over to corrupt hearts, passions, and reason. We should take idolatry seriously and and repent. Uh, Calvin writes of repentance. Repentance is the true turning of our life to God, a turning that arises from a pure and earnest fear of God. And it consists in the killing of our flesh and the old man and in the vivification or bringing to life of the spirit. In a word, I interpret repentance as regeneration, whose sole end is to restore to us the image of God 
that has been disfigured and all but obliterated. But, this is a downer note, have no fear. The next part shows us how even over the beastly kingdoms, God is king. Even over the beastly kingdoms, God rules. So our final theme, God rules the kingdom of men. And Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And this is the most centric theme to Daniel chapter 4. It's found in a refrain uh, in verses 17, 25, and 32. Uh, Commentator Dale Ralph Davis writes this of Daniel. In chapter 2, God reveals. In chapter 3, God rescues. In chapter 4, God rules. So the controlling theme of our text is the rule of God. Verses 4 through 18 is the report of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Verses 9 through 27 is the report of its interpretation. And verses 28 through 33 is the report of its fulfillment. And each one of those reports, kind of toward the end of each report, there's this of men and gives it to whom he will. Each report, that's how it ends, kind of. The word king or kingdom, we've already mentioned this, it's used over 25 times. The phrase heaven and heavens is used over 16 times. The, the title for God, Most High, is used six times throughout the text. Even this concept of watchers and holy ones doing his bidding is pointing us to this idea of God being the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Just like earthly kings have servants that they send to go out, carry out their decrees, God himself isn't appearing to Nebuchadnezzar and telling him all these things. He's sending out his watchers and his holy ones to do his bidding. And so even that is showing us that God is king. And then finally, look at verse 3, and you can also look at the very end, 34 through 35. There's poems. The poems themselves show us that Nebuchadnezzar starts to grasp the idea of God's sovereignty. So all these things just point to the very clear uh, principle of this passage. God is ruling over the kingdoms of men, even when they are beastly. He is ruling over them. Um, I want to do a little, Navi does the same thing. Um, When you see, uh, flip to the next slide actually. When you see indentions like that, this is an example of identifying poetry in the Old Testament in particular. Sometimes they do it in the New Testament too. So Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme in the way that we rhyme. Like we don't just put sounds of words. Hebrew poetry uses what's called parallelism. And basically it's just saying synonymous terms are rhyming. So I'm going to use synonyms uh, to rhyme. And so if you ever come across where there's a text that's indented over farther, that's the beginning of a poem, or that's what the people who are translating are saying. They think it's a poem. And then do you see how there's couplets and triplets? This is too complicated, but look at the example of a couplet. The first line is indented, and then the second line is indented even further. When you see that, it just means that second line belongs to the first line. And so you'll see the triplet too. The first line and then the second and third line belong to the first line. So anytime you see that in your Bibles, you can start looking for parallelism. So I I gave a really bad Bob the Builder uh, parallel. But Bob was building a skyscraper. Bob and he are parallel. Building and constructed are parallel. Skyscraper and tower are parallel. That's how Hebrew rhymes. It uses synonymous terms to like... um, Yeah, so fun fact. All right, you can go to the next slide, back to the uh, four. All right, so 
Martin Luther once wrote, even the devil is God's devil. Uh, to signify absolute sovereignty ascribed to God. Uh, in our text here, God is sovereign over Babylon's conquering of his own people, Israel. He's sovereign over the beauty and power that Babylon has now become in Nebuchadnezzar's day. He's sovereign over the very reason of Nebuchadnezzar the king himself. He's sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar losing his reasoning and becoming a beast. And he's sovereign yet again of Nebuchadnezzar shifting back from beastly form back into a man and becoming reasonable again. And so Nebuchadnezzar here tastes God's sovereignty and he writes poems about it. He sings a song, essentially. Um, But we could ask, all right, we've been down this trail again. Daniel 2, you had this dream. We showed you that your kingdom will end eventually. And then ultimately all the kingdoms are going to end when the kingdom of God comes. What did you do in Daniel 3? You built an entire statue of gold signifying, I deny that interpretation. So does Nebuchadnezzar really submit himself? Does he convert, right? Does he become a Yahweh follower as a result of this? We don't know, but I think the text seems to allude that Neb is still doing the same thing he did in Daniel 2 and Daniel 3. Um, This is pointed out by uh, John Golden Gay, um, commentator. He, he looks at the, the praise at the end, 34 and 36. Verses 34 and 36 is full of language ascribed to God. So quite literally, his, his, he, he, his, him, his, his, he. Nine times referring to God, right? That sounds good. God-centric language. Sounds like he's, uh, he's become someone who has submitted himself to the sovereignty. But right smack dab in the middle of that uh, verse, we have verse 35, in which we find my, 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 me, my, my, I, me, me. If you're counting, that's a 10 to 9 ratio. Nebuchadnezzar refers to himself 10 times and to 9, God, 9 times. You could also count in verse 36, he says the word I as well, so then it would be 11 to 9. So it seems like he might still have a lot of stock in himself, even though he is recognizing that God is sovereign. Um, so nonetheless, Daniel 4 is serving as a positive response to God's sovereignty, whereas next week, Daniel 5, you're going to see a negative response. It's going to be a very similar thing. So what does God's kingship over the kingdom of men mean for us? We can trust God in the midst of exile to carry us home. So flash forward, Revelation 17 These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. In the last days, Satan and the beast, the kingdoms of Daniel 7, will appear, and they'll make war on Jesus. But Jesus will conquer them. And this title, Lord of lords and king of kings, only appears one other time, And it's in Daniel chapter 4 in the Greek Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar confesses something slightly different than the Hebrew version. He says this, I acknowledge him, God, and praise him, God, because he is the God of gods and the Lord of lords and the King of kings. That title's then snapped and put into Revelation 17 and applied directly to the Lamb. He is the God of gods, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Christ will conquer him. So we began, we began in Babylon, and we began with a Babylonian king, 
But now we're going to end in the city of God with the king over that city, or as G.K. Beale puts it, the ultimate ruler over all kings. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 describes this king. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, Psalm 2. And he will rule them with the rod of iron, Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, on his robe and his thigh, Four. And where is this king leading us? Revelation 22, the city of God. And I'm going to read blips of the city of God and then contrast it to Babylon. So Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life. Babylon, you have the Euphrates, but you do not have the, the river of water of life. Bright as crystal, flowing through the throne of God and of the Lamb, Nebuchadnezzar's throne doesn't seem so significant anymore when you think about the throne of God and the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on the other side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Hanging gardens might be a wonder of the the world. The tree of life is the wonder of heaven. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, not the oppression of the nations like Babylon. No longer will there be anything accursed, no more beastly governments and kings and idolaters and sin and the curse that comes from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the throne of God and the Lamb, they will see his face, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Sorry, I skipped one. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So the question for us is, which king are we following, and which city are we putting our hope in? Let's pray. Father, you are faithful. You have always brought your word to fulfillment, and you will bring this word to fulfillment. I pray for us here um, that we would submit ourselves to King Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that we would submit ourselves and place all of our hope, even, even in our exile here on earth, all of our hope for any change would be placed upon you, the sovereign God who has the power to change. And Father, let our hope and let our uh, aspirations, let what we're living for be the city of God and not merely Babylon. Lord, we confess that in our own strength, Uh, left to our own devices, uh, we will not drift towards holiness, but we will drift towards idolatry. And so we ask for your grace and your power to call us to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, that we might love and desire him above all things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.